since brevity is the soul of wit. More of your conversation would infect my brain. Romeo. Wherefore art thou, Romeo? To speak of him as my kinsman, he's a most notable coward. An infinite and endless liar. An hourly promise breaker. The owner of no one good quality worthy your lordship's entertained. I'd beat thee, but I should infect my hand. The lady doth protest too much, methinks. The course of true love never did run smooth. I'm Aiden. I'm Lindsay. And this is the Bix Pod. Yes, and yeah. we are here today to discuss uh, Love's Labor's Lost. Indeed you do. Um, it's New Year's Eve, if you're listening to this the day we are releasing it. Yeah. Um, our last podcast of this decade. Yes. We've been doing this podcast for a solid three years now. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's been a lot of fun. It has been. We've got a lot planned for 2020. Yes. For the, the 20s, the roaring 20s as they were. <laughs> um, which is great because this play kind of feels a little bit like... And maybe it's because we watched the version... Um, the Kenneth Branagh directed musical version from the, yes. whatever, 2000, 2000 yeah, I think it was 2000, yeah. Um, which is kind of set in like, well, it's set in the 40s, but whatever, but, you know what? This is it has a certain cares. Well, it has a certain, Gatsby-esque you know, yes, feel vibe to it. To it. Absolutely. Uh, Love's Labor's Lost. It's it's quite a fun play. We've got a lot to talk about. Um, but first, Aiden has the unenviable task of summing up this very complex, convoluted play and we all if you've been listening to us from the beginning you know how difficult it is for Aiden to remember character names yeah so I'm so, just not gonna even try not even gonna try no. but um <laughs> it's gonna be highly entertaining for him to put 30 seconds on the clock and try and run through the plot of Love's Labor's Lost are you ready Aiden uh, as ready as I'll ever be all right I'm I'm hitting play ready? or start okay play yeah it's a start of the time you tell me when do it so the King of Navarre uh, agrees. He takes his three best buds and they're all going to study for three years. They're not going to talk to any woman. They're going to fast every day. They're just going to be excellent scholars. Mm-hmm. Uh, of course, that's stupid. And then uh, the Princess of France arrives with an entourage of three ladies uh, and to uh, figure out a, a political thing. Uh, the two groups of four obviously fall in love. There's crossed letters. There's, uh, you know, misunderstandings and made fun of people. And then at the end, uh, the king dies and the princess leaves. Hey! Yes! Not bad. I'm pretty happy with that. Yeah, you, yeah. you hit most of the... Well, you well, hit all of the, the main plot points. Well, so. there's not much of a plot. There's, really, you're right, there's really, not much of the plot. We really got to learn how to summarize the opening better. Like, maybe we should just do it in, like, three words. Like, we should set a limit to ourselves. Like That could be an interesting Four guys, challenge. four ladies, fall in love. And yeah, like, like do of, the, the yeah. movie tagline. Yeah, exactly. Maybe we should <laughs> switch to that, because this is just getting harder every time. It is. It is difficult. Try and do Hamlet. Okay, no. Midsummer. <laughs> <laughs> anyway. Uh, yeah, so that's that's the story in a nutshell. It is it is a I, well, let's call it a comedy for now. Yes. Uh, it it is a funny play. There are some genuinely funny moments, mm-hmm. uh, even in the adaptation that we watched, which was, I'd say, a little heavy on the ham-fisted comedy stuff. Yes. Uh, it played it really for laughs, and in some ways that didn't work as well. But even just reading the play, there were a couple scenes where I was reading and I was like laughing out loud. Yeah, the, the, the setup is just so good. Exactly. And you can see how it would be performed on stage. And yeah. and again, this is one of the plays that we have seen performed a couple of times. Um, and so the there, there are... The comedy comes from 
the character motivations, the character actions, and the wordplay, mm-hmm. which is really something special to read. When coming just off of the the uh, narrative poems that yes. we just did in our last episode, um, seeing how the wordplay works in this play, and the way that language is being employed to obfuscate or to um, enlighten other things. Yeah. It's really, really fun. It is. Um, and then and then to actually have actors performing it again, it's another play that you really should see performed live in some way or, or see in a film version because um, there is just so much fun stuff with the, the fool character. Uh, what's his name? Oh, uh, Don Amato? The, no, no, the... Oh, Costard. Yeah, Costard, yeah, yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and, and the remuneration yes. stuff that he goes through. Yeah. and remuneration. Uh, yeah. <laughs> and, and just, yeah, I mean, it's it's a tired trope maybe to have, you know, mistaken identities. But it's because of plays like this that Shakespeare kind of pioneered that they're tropes at all. Yeah. So it is it is a really fun play to read. And it's not a hard play. It's it's quite well, short. Act five is, is a well, slog. It, it, is, it is strangely structured that way because, mm-hmm. like, the first three... Yeah, Acts, especially just blow by. It's like and act then, one, scene one, act two, scene one, act yeah. three, scene one. There's like, it There's just goes nothing. boom, boom, boom. And then you get to act five, which is like, like the longest act, I think, yeah, in all in of Shakespeare. Shakespeare. It's like 1800 lines or yeah. something like that. It's crazy long. Um, but yeah, so it's, it's a little oddly structured, but it is, I would say it's fairly easy to read and yeah. follow. Um, but there is a lot of obfuscation. Uh, there's a lot of complicated language as mm-hmm. well. Uh, and it kind of ties into one of the themes of the play which i think we'll just jump into here uh which is learning and study and Mm -hmm. uh the acquisition of knowledge Mm -hmm. uh there's so the the king character uh the king of navarre i think his name's ferdinand in the play his best bro is uh barone barone yeah isn't it another name it's i I read a ver- when I was starting to read this. They had some. I think there's some differences in the names yes, between the, the folio text. and the quarto yes. versions of these. Yeah, maybe we, should, maybe we should mention that too. There were uh, there's a folio edition uh, that people think was actually based on an earlier quarto. Yeah. Uh, then that one didn't survive. So yeah. we have quarto one, which is missing. Then there was quarto two. Uh, and then there was the folio, and the version that we read is based on quarter two because quarter two was actually based on uh, was an updated version of quarter one. Right. So it was the folios copying from quarter one, uh, and then they used a lot of quarter is, two yeah. to update it. But you read in 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 reading these plays, there are often and Folger does a really good job of of indicating yeah. what's been taken from which version because yeah. they do take some from the folio. It looks yeah. like so um, if you're reading that version, it's actually quite interesting to see what they because um, some yeah. some lines wouldn't make sense without like there were rhyming couplets that were the second rhyming part yes. was missing if, yes. if you didn't take it from the folio so there it is an interesting kind of amalgamation of the text this is actually one of the easier ones to both uh look at the history of the text uh understand it because it's fairly limited it's not like there are 12 quartos published yeah. in before the folio or anything like that there's just a, a limited and it's not set. a hugely popular play no. either so i mean it's not like it went through a bunch of different yeah changes their hands even to like yeah, yeah we put right? it back on and everything. or or unlike something like i don't know romeo and juliet that you know well no maybe not I don't remember what don't the remember. printing history of Romeo. Either way, but yeah. you were talking about Barone. Yeah, so, so. there, there, uh, there was a speech that Barone gives early on, uh, where he's talking about, well, what's, what are we doing here? What, are, yeah. why are we secluding ourselves for three years? And it's to acquire knowledge that we don't already have, and that's kind of the theme of the, uh, the driving instinct of a lot of the characters, and it's better represented uh, in there's 
two uh, scholarly figures, I would say. They're the, yes. they're the tutors. They're the ones that are in this... Holofernes. Yes. And... and uh, the, so that's the teacher, and then there's it's a priest or a vicar so. or something, um, but I forget the name. I forget the name as well. Um, but yes, they are they are the kind of yeah scholarly teacherly figures that kind of and they're older, yeah, right. So not as interested in the. We should mention that these these young men, the king and his three musketeers are young men <laughs> yes. young women so it's it's a young person's yes um dilemma it, it reminds <laughs> me it reminds me of that uh that comedy bit um by john mulaney i think who was like annoyed that all the songs of today are all about tonight and we only have tonight it's like <laughs> no you know you're 20 you don't know what <laughs> that's yeah. what this play is about it's like yeah. we're gonna be scholars and oh my god those beautiful women yeah. we have to do this instead <laughs> it's like and we have to do it now and and meanwhile there's there's you know older people involved who are like really yeah exactly yeah <laughs> even as older people reading it you're like really <laughs> and and so uh there's so this this focus on on knowledge is kind of uh, weaved throughout, and there because of that, there's mm. a lot of Latin. There's a yes. ton of Latin. Yes. Like you really do need the footnotes unless you're floating in Latin, I guess. Uh, there's some Greek. There's lots of uh, just general wordplay yeah. on words that we don't use anymore. Uh, this is one. I mean, it, as easy as the text is to follow the plot. Yeah. Um, if you want to really dive into the intricacies of the of the the language, the language and what's being said, you really do need to dedicate some time and think about it. Well, and that's that's kind of where Costard's uh, inability to understand remuneration. Yeah. He thinks remuneration means three farthings. farthings. Think, yeah. Like that's what remuneration means. And if you didn't know what that remuneration means paying you for like for re- services, compensating yeah, yeah. you for services yeah, rendered. Yeah. Um, you might also think that remuneration means whatever that person is giving you. It's like calling something a, a well, anything. Whatever. That's how language works. And that, yeah. and that's one of the interesting things is that this, this play as simple as, and as straightforward as the structure is, there's a lot more intricacies to certain aspects of it. And the language is one thing yeah. because there is such such playfulness with the language. Yeah. There's a lot of rhyming, yes. uh, as Lindsay mentioned, uh, and it does feel very indebted to the poems mm-hmm. that... Uh, we just talked about. What year was this was this play written? So it was mid fifteen nineties. Yeah. Uh, so again, very much around that time. So like, of the poems. so we think that the and we scholars think scholars. that the the narrative poems, the sonnets, a lot of this stuff was written during the downtime when the plague had closed the the playhouses in London. Yeah. Uh, so this would have been after that. So Shakespeare would have gone home for a period of time, probably left London, left the plague. Um, and honed his craft a little bit and then maybe comes back and has this explosion of, of dialogue and yeah. rhyming and, and beautiful language that really isn't present in any of the plays that we've looked at thus far. Yeah. Um, yeah, far more than even like Two Gentlemen of Verona had a bit of it and stuff like yeah, that. Yeah, a this little is, bit. But this is like this is like yeah. something like fertilizer was put on the garden and, and yeah. like now we've got these hollyhocks that are 15 feet high. Like yeah. it's crazy, right? Yeah. Um, but... Yeah, so it's uh, it's very much it feels very much like a play that the the author is flexing on us a little bit. Yes, right. Like this is and and the fact that it's very likely that Shakespeare played Barone yes. on stage is very interesting, and that Barone is the one who kind of, at the beginning. It's very cool that 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 the King of Navarre and 
I'm going to pull in Aiden and forget the names of the other two dudes. Yeah. There. Uh, Longville and something Longville else. Longville and yeah. The they're other um, <laughs> The other guy. Yeah. They are, they're so into this. They're like, yes, sign. We're going to sign away our lives for three years. No women fasting, staying up, you know, yeah, whatever. one hour sleep every night. And yeah. Rowan is like, I didn't agree to this. This is dumb. <laughs> well, this is, this stupid. is stupid. Well, and, and his point is a good one, is which is that the initial conceit of these men secluding themselves and mm-hmm. fasting, mm-hmm. not sleeping, studying every single second of the day is bound to fail. Like, yeah. and that's and that's yeah, you're kind setting of, yourself up for failure. Exactly, and he's the only one who's kind of aware of this. And so, having Shakespeare, the author of these conceits, now, yeah. Shakespeare would have been 30, 31, 32. Yeah. So not an old man but an older man and i think it's interesting in the version that we watched kenneth Branagh is the one who plays barone um clearly several years (laughs) older than the other three men in the company yes um so it's almost like there's a a a bit of wisdom yes coming from this older character talking to these younger men who think that first of all thinking that that as aiden said this is going to work yeah that this is the way that you acquire knowledge is by you know, pulling a monk in the yeah, 10th yeah. century and just yeah, exactly. isolating yourself. As um, a king, especially, seems yeah, particularly silly. Very yeah. strange. Yeah, we'll get to that. <laughs> but um but that but that this is it's a it's a necessary requirement that you must, you know, sequester oneself. You must one must um the, there's like you Knowledge comes from a vacuum almost, mm-hmm. right? And and that's that's a thing that philosophers used to do. You you would have these, you know. Yeah, the uh, ancient Greeks would just yeah go off into yeah. the mountain and be like, I've come back and I know everything. Like <laughs> yeah, or, or um, uh, Siddhartha, wasn't that Gautama? Who am I talking about? Oh, Buddha. The Buddha. Yeah, yeah. yeah who yeah. was like, yeah, let's just go sit under a tree for X number of years or whatever. Well, and and he then found I, enlightenment. Yeah, he exactly, found enlightenment, yeah. or he was so hungry that. he... <laughs> He thought he found <laughs> enlightenment. But, I mean, that's that's a very common thing. And it's played for laughs here because we know from the very beginning that this is bound to fail, especially when we hear that the king of France's daughter is the princess is yes. coming. to and, and that this was arranged. This, yeah, everybody this knew happening. this was happening. Yeah, and the king is just like, oh, shit, I forgot. Yeah, I forgot about that. Well, I guess we're going to have to lodge her in the field because she can't come into our court. Yeah. And it's like, well, and there's four women and... Like obviously, this play is set up. It's it's structured in a way that's very obvious, but kind of smart because there's so much dramatic irony that's that's yeah. right from yeah, the beginning, from everywhere. Yeah, right. That these characters are so blind to the fact that this enterprise is going to fail. Yeah, but the playwright has has deliberately put laid these seeds. Well, exactly. Way, yeah. Right. It's it's very smart writing, as far as I'm concerned. If music be the food of love, play on. And kind of connecting with that, uh, there's a there's a lot of witticism. There's a lot of back and forth, quick banter. Yeah. Um, this is very reminiscent of something that'll come uh, soon enough in Much, Much Ado. Ado. Uh, and even in other plays, oh, there's, yeah, like, there's lots of... Oh, yeah, like, you know, of, with Katarina and Petruchio yeah, it's already and kind of shown up. And... But this is on a higher level yes. even than, than that one, I would say. Um, and... I would say that especially between Barone and his love interest, Rosaline, Rosalide, something, maybe, maybe I've completely made up a new We really should prep a little (laughs) bit better for this. It's hard. Um, But the two of them especially have some very good uh, back and forth. Same with the king and uh, the princess uh, from France. They have a lot of 
uh, playful banter. Um, and especially in the Kenneth Branagh version, mm. it's it's uh, with Alicia Silverstone as yes. <laughs> the Princess of France, by the way. Yes. Uh, it's very much just good natured fun. There's not even it's not even really uh, flirting, as you'll find out by the end of the play. Um, the women were kind of assuming everything was in jest, whereas the men have actually fallen deeply in love with one another. Mm-hmm. Um, so uh, that that's that's another interesting kind of twist on the typical comedy stylings because um it's not it's not really a set of love stories it's a set of one group falling in love and one group thinking it's all in in jest Mm -hmm. uh and that's again a a kind of subversion of of what you're expecting from a play like this right and that's even referenced several times towards the end of the play which we we won't well i don't know i suppose we could spoil it we're gonna spoil the ending we always spoil this. This is a spoiler-free podcast, right? Not no, spoiler-free. Spoiler free, not a spoiler-free podcast. What a am I saying? spoiler-filled podcast. Spoiler-filled podcast. Yeah. Anyway, <laughs> um, that that at the end, there is no marriage. Yeah. Right? Um, and there's a period of time. So the men have chosen to sequester themselves for three years. By the end of the play, they're given their loves, their women, give them uh, a task of, of sequestering themselves for one year to do the thing that is hardest for them to do uh barone has to go and and make the second indigent laugh yeah. for a year stuff like that yeah. that, that they say it's impossible to do it's not something that we're capable of doing um and barone which is if barone was played by shakespeare it's even more interesting um that this happened he says that this is not how this is supposed to be this is not you know it doesn't fit it doesn't fit within a play and and a year a time span of a year well that's definitely too long for a play i think is the quote um so there's a lot of metatextual intrigue and playfulness going on because this is a playwright who's playing with the structure of the thing that he's creating yeah and and doing so in a way that um lets the audience in on the joke a little bit but also expands the the scope of what a play is capable of. Because mm-hmm. up, up until this point, as we've talked about, there were dramas, like like tragedies that ended with murders and death, and there were comedies that ended with marriages. And then we have this, um, the history plays, I guess, which don't really fit into anything. Yeah. But then you have this, this additional, I guess, category of play that comes later that Shakespeare seems to be playing with now very early on Mm -hmm. the problem plays that are or the romance plays or whatever that are that are very different in structure from anything else and um and seeing it here was was kind of surprising because um I mean even if you see like we like us if you'd seen the play a couple times before it still kind of hits you that this this shift in tone happens very abruptly at the Mm. end where a messenger just arrives out of the blue and says oh yeah by the way princess your 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 father died you're now the queen of france and you can't marry the king of navarre right away like this is this there are other things that has to have to to be be, attended to yeah and so that there's a necessity put in place like uh, we would expect that this play would end there's this mask and there's a a big party and you're like okay well there's going to be a marriage right you've got a vicar there already anyway (laughs) like let's just do this but of course it doesn't happen and so it's um that's it is it is interesting and it's not like it's it's dropped in there and not referenced it's like there this is a central um it's it's a central plot point it's a central moment for all of these characters to pledge their loves to one another and then to say in order to 
um, to earn this, I guess, because we've only had three days together. Here's this year. Here's this task you have to do in order to, you know, Mm -hmm. marry me. Um, And that and it's it is built into the story. It's it's something that feels like it it as abrupt as it is. It feels like it it's necessary. It comes out of what we've watched for what we've read for the last. Yeah. In a strange way, because it. Because at the same time, you could you could see it resolving itself in a typical kind of Love's Labor's one, yes. which is another play that we can <laughs> mention later on. But yes. uh, there, you know, you could see it resolving itself positively. Mm-hmm. And the fact that in the title, Love's Labor's Lost, and that's yes. that's really what a lot of this play winds up being about is about working for love. Yes. Um, and it's right in the title. You know, yeah. it's it's one of those things where like it's another tragedy. You know, you got the name right in the title right. of what's going to happen. Romeo and Juliet are going to die. Yeah. Uh, this one, it's not going to turn out well, but it's still, it pulls the wool over your eyes uh, up until that that abrupt change in the fifth act. So right. uh, it's it's a very interesting structure. I've, mm-hmm. uh, I've just spent the, the first, you know, five minutes talking about how norm, normal and ordinary it is, but it really isn't. It's, it's yeah. kind of a, an interesting experiment from Shakespeare yeah. at this early age where this is the first time we've kind of found something that doesn't have a traditional structure in any way, shape or form. No. Um, but it kind of does. And so it, yeah. it's a subtle subversion. It's not, it's not like the, the, the romances and the problem plays that come later are much different. Like the winter's tale is, yeah. is, so entirely different there's a big time shift uh that's remarked upon and and yeah. it allows the characters to grow up and everything uh this doesn't have that sort of thing but it still plays on what the audience's expectations are right. and subverts them it's it's very lynchian we, that's maybe that's why we like <laughs> sure. it. sure yeah exactly absolutely for i must tell you friendly in your ear sell when you can you are not for all markets so just to comment on uh, that experimentation a little more, Lindsay, I just want to expand it on a little bit because I think it, it actually applies to a lot of different points in the play. Uh, there's not just the structure itself, but uh, sometimes the dialogue, uh, the pacing, especially of the dialogue, can switch abruptly from this witty back and forth between lovers to, or supposed lovers, to uh, the teachers, for instance, when they go on and on about their their Latin and you really have to slow down and read mm-hmm. it very carefully and listen very clear, carefully if you're if you're watching a, a faithful adaptation. Um, you know, that 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 abrupt change happens quite quickly. Whereas right. in most of the plays we've read so far, it's it's kind of a consistent speed and tone. I mean, the, Henry the uh, Sixth Part Two had you yeah. know this, the Jack Cade stuff thrown in that kind of shifted up a little right. bit. Um, but for the most part, it's it's been fairly consistent as, in terms of like you have your funny characters who speak in prose and your uh, your, your romantic characters who speak in verse, and uh, you go back and forth. Mm-hmm. Uh, but here it's almost uh, the opposite because even uh, Costard, yes. the uh, fool, uh, rhymes and so forth. Here, it's yeah. it's it's a it's a little it's it's just another subtle shift from what what you're kind of expecting. Well, there's there's a lot of plots actually going on. It's not like other plays that have that kind of unity of of storytelling that mm-hmm. the Greeks were very interested in, and Shakespeare was trying to yeah, and some adhere to most yeah. playwrights did. Yeah. Um, here we have the central the central storyline of these four men and four women falling for one another. But you also have uh, yeah Don Armado who is um, 
from Spain and and is kind of a foolish character. He's yeah. played kind of foolishly, especially um, in the cast. For last, <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, falling in love for and impregnating Jaquinetta, who yeah. is a, a local town wench. So yeah. that storyline is is happening. It's kind of a low class comic scene or comic plot yeah um you do have the the teacher characters who have their moments there's a lot of and then and then at the end this this great shift of this father who's away and is sick we know he's sick um it's brought back to the end so there's there's lots of threads and lots of things that are going on it's not like um most of the other plays where there's like a central thrust and there might be some side intrigue you have you know queen margaret you know plotting with her lover but it's all towards that central theme everybody's trying to get the crown right here there's love stories and there's conversations and there's lots going on that don't really have to do with the central story yes so it it lends itself very well to kind of um a modern it fits very well with modern storytelling, with modern mm-hmm. filmmaking. I think that's why I really enjoyed the Kenneth Branagh version yeah. as much as I did. Um, but it it's like this fracturing of the 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 traditional storytelling norms, I guess. In a way, I don't know. That's just what it felt like to me. No. It felt very fresh and modern. I don't understand why why people have said that this is not one of Shakespeare's best plays. It's, yeah. it's kind of a, a low watermark for, for Shakespeare. For and I, I was reading it. I, I think that was... I think I was reading the the review of the Brana film. Yes. And it was Roger Ebert who said that this was okay. not one of Shakespeare's well, best. And but it just startled me because I thought this was actually quite innovative. Yeah. No, and I agree. I think the film adaptation with Brana is, is It has jarring. its problems. Yeah, it has, definitely has some problems. I mean, between his casting... Himself. And we'll talk about that when we get to the end. I'm sure we'll focus on, but but if you just look at the story itself, yeah, no, the play, the text itself is very interesting, yeah. uh, and it's it's actually it's been one of the most fun ones to read and think about yeah. after after reading uh, of all the plays. Yeah. So uh, I'm I'm very uh, yeah I did, I disagree with yeah. Roger Ebert as well. Yeah. Lindsay is my yes. my belabored way of getting <laughs> to that point. Um, but and it's, sorry, just to continue with that that sensitive yeah. uh, experimentation, it applies to the language that we've already talked about, the pacing, the structure. Um, but even some in some instances, the characters, mm. um, like you said, uh, having a fool, a uh, secondary fool, and then there's Dull, who's kind of like uh, standing for a fool for and like moth? yeah exactly like yeah. there's all these there's multiple redundant characters and yes. it, it the same goes for the suitors i mean they're basically interchangeable yes i don't remember any of their names except for barone and the king right and and the, the ladies and are and dumaine is the dumaine other is the other one okay yeah. yes so the names sure but i don't remember there's nothing particularly instructive about them so they no. really do merge into this one kind of cohesive unit of whom barone kind of acts as the the spokesman, voice yeah the yeah. spokesman for it um which is interesting because it's not the king which would be expected yes but so there, there, there's kind of an interesting uh, dynamic to that even where, uh, you know, in most of Shakespeare's comedies where there's multiple characters being confused for one another, it's it's on the textual level. Like literally yeah. characters are misunderstanding them. But here I get the sense as a as a viewer, you wouldn't even really care about 
any of these characters because you know they're kind of being treated as a monolith. I think that's kind of an interesting well, and shift I think, as well. I think the funniest scene in the whole play is the scene where the four suitors, the four male suitors, um, who have each fallen in love with a woman that has come to their court, um, but don't want the other men to know that they're yes. lapsing in their oath. Yeah. Um, they have this this very comic scene. Barone comes in pledging his love for Rosaline. I think it's Rosaline. I think it is, yeah. And then the king comes in, and then the Longueville comes in, and then Dumaine comes in, and they each are seen by the previous guy who doesn't know that the previous guy has also seen <laughs> them, him. Yeah. And then, so there's this... this addition of each character to all four of them on stage and then they're all accusing each other up the line yeah um that they're that uh, accusing each other of doing the thing that they They're themselves done, yeah. they themselves have done yeah. um but it's very funny that it's it's not like they're they're all guilty of the same crime yeah. really quote unquote crime and and it's meant to be there's nothing distinguishing them from one another aside from the fact that the order in which they enter the room yeah right um i really do think that's kind of like a wind up for the uh, of that that idea that Aiden yeah. you're talking about that that they're really interchangeable yeah they've all just fallen in love with a girl they've slotted into their place this is what was meant to happen there's a funny scene it is quite a funny scene yeah but it's um it's entire there's there's literally nothing about what they're saying or what they're doing that distinguishes them from One any from of the other no. any of the other guys. Yeah. And I yeah, and I just think that's that's interesting because it's 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 intentional in that way for yeah. Shakespeare, I think, to say like, here's four characters, but you don't have to think of them as four characters. You can yeah. think of them as one... as one comedy center, yeah. you know, yeah. and and it works really well that way. And I think that's just again another innovation. It's at this kind stage. of it's kind of the same idea as having, um, you know, two sets of brothers and two sets of brothers who are twins and they all have the same name. Well, yeah, comedy it's bears. A, it's yeah. it's a it's an extension. <laughs> we just did comedy of, bears and yes, yes, and it, it's a, but it's an extension of that conceit. It is, but in it, a way, it is, but it's not in the sense that the audience is not supposed to laugh no. at that. That the, the 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 misconstruing of identity is not. No, there it's for not laughs. Just sen- no, no. It's there to prove a point about love, I think. Well, yes. Maybe and so so else. when they do mistake identities at the end, when the women get wise to what the men are up to yeah. and they decide. So the men have given each of the women a token of their affection mm-hmm. and the women are at this party and they know that the men are coming and that the men are going to try and woo them. So, they, But, but in, in costume. In costume. Yeah. So they decide to switch brooches and yeah, scarves or whatever, whatever it is yeah, they the switch gifts. so that everybody is wearing somebody else's token so the men come in to woo the women in costume based on whatever token of affection they're wearing so in that scene again the women are interchangeable it doesn't yes. matter who is wooing whom yeah. it just matters that oh i see you're wearing my my pin yeah i'm gonna you're my girl exactly so i'm gonna make love to you yeah right? yeah and it's it, it is saying something interesting about identity there because yeah. the men are misidentified as well they're yes. supposed to be dressed as russians yes uh and the women are mis uh mislabeled yes. i would say yeah and so this whole idea of like love being the thing that that you set your eyes and you know that person, you're going to love that person forever is completely thrown on its head because it's, it's, it's been invented. It's been created. Well, and that, that is what is, is brought up so many times in this play, the, the play on words around seeing and vision and, and what we behold in our eyes for the men in the play, the eyes have it. That's, that's what, what is the, (laughs) the, 
the holder of all love is in the eye. And I think that's why the play can't end in marriage because that's that scene where they mistake identity happens so soon before the end that it, there's no chance there's for no them chan- to recover yeah, and actually exactly. fall in love with someone. Yeah. So, of course, you have to have a year. You have to prove to me that you actually do want to marry me. Yeah. Um, because you were just making out with my best friend. Yeah. You know, like, yeah. so prove yourself a little bit. It feels like a, that's that's what I meant when I said earlier that it, it that and even though it's abrupt, it grows out of something necessary that the plot is telling us it needs Mm -hmm. we don't really know it at the time because we're conditioned to expect this to end in marriage but when when it comes you're like okay this makes sense each of the men is being given a task that matches to something they're deficient in yeah and then and they're doing they have to do this in order to prove their love because five minutes ago they were faithless and so that's it's it's necessary it's it's very appropriate i think to have that happen but the fact that the men are so and it's true, we say this to this day, that men are visual creatures. That's why men like porn so much, <laughs> yeah. right? It's This is what men do. And I'm sorry to stereotype, but it, it is a stereotype for a reason. And yeah. this is this is a key example of it. That's all the men are interested in. Um, for scholars, for, for guys who are trying to yeah, be exactly. philosophers, yeah, yeah. they really suck at it, they right? Are. And they don't mm. understand their own emotions and their own... Um, Drives and stuff. What, yeah, 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 what's yeah. pushing them forward. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's it's just it's very clever, I think. I agree. You horse and cur. No, no. Thou stole for a witch. I do, do thou sudden witted lord. Thou hast no more brain than I have in my nose. One last point to make on this one, Lindsay. Yeah. Uh, it, it is a very interesting play, and we'll, we'll get to our debate topic right away. But um, the there was a the essay in the Folger yes. version uh, had a very interesting point about how. Um, the interconnection between love and language yes. in this play. It is very strong, and, and you'd expect that from a Shakespearean play about love. There's going to mm-hmm. be witty banter and so forth, and we, we've talked about that. Um, but in this case, uh, both language and love are very much in flux throughout mm-hmm. the throughout the, the play. Uh, that's evident from, as you just described, how the men are just, you know, willing to give their love to whatever they, whatever token they've kind of assigned to their uh, chosen target. Um, and in, in this way, uh, language too is kind of constantly churning and evolving and, and changing uh, to kind of adapt to whatever the men are kind of pursuing at the moment. Yeah. So uh, that, that, that sense of knowledge and, you know, initially they're there to learn and to acquire that knowledge uh, through the study of Latin, say. Yeah. Um, and then it gets subverted as they fall further and further in love. Yes. Um, and the language starts to fail them in terms of yes. providing that that kind of structure for them to uh to uh, follow and have a path forward. Uh, and by the end, they're kind of just like... Floundering a yeah, little Yeah, they're bit. floundering a little bit. And they, yeah. they've kind of given up on uh, the study of language for the study of love and both wind up being lost yes. at the end of the play, right? Yes. Like they have, they wind up not, they're not even going to study for a year. Yeah. They're going to go do something else for a year yeah. um, to tutor them in the ways of love. So in order given up. for them to get the love that they've been battling for yes. for the last five acts yes. that is also lost to them. Yeah. So I, I, I think it's just an interesting, uh, the, the essay was actually quite, it's another great one yeah. that we, uh, we appreciated uh, reading through. Um, but there, there are a lot of connections between how language is used in the play and the structure of the play itself. 
And I think what's it's so appropriate then that the um, the title of the play itself mm-hmm. provides so much fodder for discussion. <laughs> Where do the apostrophes go yes. in loves and labors yeah. determines how you read the play. And there are different schools of thought on yeah. is it love possessive loves possessive labors lost is it the labors that belong to love is it the the love the the labors of love that are lost Lost. (laughs) like what what is it and and so i mean that's probably not intentional like you know absolutely i mean this was the guy who's inventing the modern language it's not not like shakespeare wrote 10 different versions of of the title page and then put the apostrophes elsewhere right like but i'm sure he was aware when he was writing it that you could interpret it 16 different ways when you when you actually read. depending on how you how you how you apostrophize the title yes and that as a, an apostrophe geek, as a grammar geek, a punctuation nerd, nerd yes. um, I really appreciate that. I think that's really clever. And it, it really, it sets you up for the the conflation of um, language as a, a, an overarching structure that gets you what you want mm-hmm. um, and the love that the language is supposed to support. Yeah. The, those, not the conflation, I guess, but the, the confusion of those two, I think. And the way that the, the main male characters fail so utterly. Mm-hmm. Um, I just, yeah, I think it sets you up right from the beginning to expect that. And so, I yeah, again, it's just, there's so much going on in the play, we could have talked about this for a long, long time, I'm sure. But um, it's it's just it's such a fun play, and for a couple of nerds like us, it's just yeah, it's high up there. Yeah. Um, do you want to talk about the film really quickly? Sure. Because I think that it, as as I said earlier, this play does lend itself very well to to filmmaking. Um, Kenneth Branagh's version is the only one that we watched. There aren't a lot of versions out there. Nope. There is. Uh, there are a few. Uh, like there's a Royal Shakespeare Company uh, version which we didn't watch. We were we were going to, uh, yes. but we decided on the Kenneth Branagh instead. There, yeah. And there's there's the BBC production. I think that's mostly it. Yeah. Uh, there's not too many other uh, filmed adaptations. But it it was fun to because we haven't watched an adaptation, a modern sort of or yeah, more modern. Well, this one's adaptation. very modern. Because well, it is, but it's, yeah. it's 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 not set in. It's not like. Um, uh, Ten Things I Hate About You, which is set yes, in like, okay, yes, you know, yeah, yeah. it's set in the 40s. It's set in the lead up to World War II. Um, and it, it's a musical. So it, it is a musical it and features, it features all yeah. the music of George and Ira Gershwin yeah. and um, Cole Porter, and, and yeah. which makes it feel even more Gatsby-esque, yes, I guess. Yes, yes. Um, so I like that part of, of the film. I thought mm-hmm. that it was, it's a fun enough film that making it a musical makes sense. Yeah. Um. And all of the actors who were in it did their own singing. They did their own dancing. It was quite an intense production from what I could read about it, yeah. um, that they, they studied dancing and singing before they, they did it. Quite a few big names were yeah. were in it. You yeah. had Matthew Lillard playing um, Longueville, I think. I think. Yeah. Um, Alicia Silverstone as the Princess of France. Yeah. Um, Emily Mortimer? Yes. As, as one of the ladies. One of the ladies. And another actress who I've... Whoever played uh, Rosaline. Rosaline. Yeah, you recognize. Uh, her. I recognize I her, recognize but her. I, I didn't. I couldn't know her name yeah. to save my life. Yeah. And uh, but yeah, I mean, it was a very. Oh, and and good Nathan cast. Lane as yes. Costard, which was really yeah, great which is great. See. He's he, yes. wonderful, of course. <laughs> the highlight of the film, easily. Yeah. yeah. Uh, but so it, it makes a lot of sense to have it being set in this period of time and and to have the music 
have it be a musical to begin with is fun. There were a few things that that just didn't work. <laughs> didn't work as well as I think they had hoped it would. And, yeah. and it is quite jarring. They change the ending and they make there's there's a sense of Love's Labor's one at the yeah. end of the film when they show that World War One breaks out. It's actually set in 1939, so it's yeah. in the lead up to um, the, the start European of the countries yeah. going to war, yeah. and. Um, so the men get called away and have to go to war and the women do their thing, you know, on the home front and yeah. hold down the fort. And then there's a scene at the end where they all come back together in the streets and it's all happy and, you know, VE day. Right. Um, which changes the, the tenor of the film the entire, considerably. Yeah. yeah. Well, the story. Uh, well, yeah, exactly. Yeah, because yeah. it has to I feel like it has to end on that that note of. Of, we don't know what's actually going to happen. Yeah, it's it's kind of like a cliffhanger almost. Well, but, well it is because this is <laughs> yeah, this is something we talked about. Uh, yeah, it is. Uh, this is something we talked about immediately afterwards. Was like the end of the text play. Um, you don't know because it's again they've all said like this is impossible. I can't mm-hmm. do this for a year. Mm-hmm. Just like at the start they said, well, I can't. Like Rome was questioning like, well, can we actually do this for three years? Yeah. And of course the answer was no. So is the answer also no at the yeah. end of this play? Like yeah. the play is actually very ambiguous about whether or not this is going to lead to marriage. Yeah. Uh, the possibility is there, and it seems like a more reasonable request. You yeah. know, it's just like go help sick people and make them laugh, and go you know uh, seclude yourself for a year and and uh, you know help out the poor or something like that whatever it is for the king you know they're more reasonable requests but it still seems again for a king is not going to be able to seclude himself for a year like he's going to have to do his kingly duties and and lead his country but even if that wasn't the case the other guys who are just guys in his court are still I think incapable of doing the things that they um, are agreeing to do and that I think is is (laughs) it reminds me of you know, when when you're with someone in the throes of passion and you ask them to come to Christmas dinner <laughs> and meet your family and they're like, yeah, baby, I'll do whatever you want. <laughs> but in the cold light of day, you're like, what the, the hell, hell did I it? agree to? Yeah. That's what I feel like this is. And it feels very much like like these are young people's problems, young people agreeing to do stupid shit that they aren't going to actually follow through on. So it... it it feels very appropriate that the play ends where it does and how it does. Um, Love's Labor's one, a totally different play that's been lost. Yeah. Um, I do we have a synopsis for the play? So there's a couple theories to that point, okay. Lindsay. Uh, there's some people uh, think that it was a sequel to Love's okay. Labor's Lost. Okay. Uh, perhaps the conclusion of that. Uh, some people think that it's an alternative name to a different play, like Much Ado About Nothing. Okay. Which is, yes, you know, that's would what seem heard, yes. like a Love's Labor's one yes. kind of play. Um, so even or as you like it, there might be something like that. Mm. Uh, so it's possible that uh, it was just renamed for the, yeah. the folio, one of those plays that only appeared in the folio. Um, but it's definitely if if it was a sequel to this one, it's been lost entirely. Right. There's no real sense of uh, what it was about, or uh, there's no really clear uh, consensus sen- yeah consensus about. about what what the play would have. Well, and that's very fitting then. This, this exactly, it was actually <laughs> lost. This, yes. this love of this labor um, of love was lost. <laughs> but I think that that works, and I like that a lot more than than thinking that there was some kind of sequel, which feels very much like 
Marvel and Disney sequelizing things. Lindsay, he just wrote three Henry the Sixth plays. Okay, I know, (laughs) I know, but at least if anybody was was doing the Marvel continuity series back then, it was Shakespeare. But this was not one of those stories that needed to have a sequel. It didn't need to be finished. I feel like as a story itself, it is it's quite well rounded and finished and and smart and entertaining as it is and, and i agree i think it would have been it'd be very disappointing to find out that yeah there was a love slavers one that yeah. used the same characters and had them all wrapped they up all end up nice getting married package. and having babies and it's like that's... unless like it was like a terrible tragedy and everybody died i mean that would have been great like that would have really sure. subverted it our would. expectations it would maybe yeah or it's just about don armado and jacquinetta having yeah, their lots fun. Of babies. kind of like <laughs> the way that mary wives of windsor yes, carries on with falstaff yeah. a yeah. spin-off yes that's yeah. it that's yeah. Could could say it could be that you know who knows perfect, um, but that's that was my main criticism of the film the mm-hmm. Brana film was that it it tried to turn this into a happy ending when a happy ending is not what is called for. We had a lot of fun, everything was great, but now we have to go back to our lives and it's going to be a year before we can actually. If this all works, it's going to be a year before we can come back together. Yeah. And that feels very appropriate. And, and yeah. I think the film took it too far. Well, and to be fair, though, to be fair. To be fair. To be fair. Uh, it is. I can understand why, because this is it is lighthearted up until that point. It is. It's more like the 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 play is an art house kind of gift. Yeah. You know, yes. and Brano is writing a movie for the masses, you know, he's trying to bring Shakespeare to as many people as possible. Right. So he's gonna he's gonna throw that sure. in there. And it was it was honest enough to the play in that every there's no text of um them all getting together at the end. No. It's all through like a highlight reel of uh well, shaky it was done, like, war newsreel camp, war, newsreel footage. Yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. So uh so that that was Good enough in my mind. I I didn't I didn't like that, um, but that was only because I'd read the play. If I'd never read the play, I'd be like, oh yeah, that was a nice little right. happy ending, right? Um, so I think as a standalone, it's okay. I didn't particularly enjoy the musical. I think some of the people should not have done their own voices, perhaps. <laughs> oh. uh, not that I can sing at all, so I really yeah. can't complain. But um, it was it was at times a little jarring. Uh, because, you know, some were very good dancers and some were not. And it mm. was a little distracting. I don't know. I don't know. It's it's very of the moment. It's very 2000 film. Yes. Uh, it's at the crest of this 90s Shakespeare wave, which yeah. we're going to do an episode we're about at some to. point. Uh, what What is interesting about this is that um, Brana had done other plays, other tons. Shakespearean plays. Almost all of them. He had inked a three-picture deal. Uh, this was the first of those three. Um, this film did very poorly in the box office. Like, didn't make back its... Not even not close. Even close to yeah. making back what it cost, and the deal was scrapped. Mm. And Brana didn't go back to directing or acting in a Shakespeare play for quite a while mm. um, after this. So, Or a Shakespeare film, I should say. Um, so it kind of... I don't want to say it tarnished, because it didn't. Um, he's still the preeminent modern... Yeah, Shakespeare Shakespeare guy. film guy. Yeah. Um, but it certainly didn't do what he expected it to do and what the production company expected it to do. And so I think that you're right. This is riding a wave of, of Shakespeare mania, I guess, that was happening at the turn of the century. Mm-hmm. But um, it didn't capture... And I, I can't figure out why unless it was the the corniness of the 
it wasn't the right time to bring back yeah. Gershwin or, yeah. you know, it, I kind of feel like, like, I don't, I don't know. There, yeah. there, maybe people weren't interested in it being a musical, I, but people are really turned off by musicals. I think yeah, unless you're and, a musical person. Well, yeah. And at that time, what was the last musical that came out before that? That was a well, hit. Like, honestly, I can't think of one that came out in the nineties. That was a hit. No, and and we rode a wave there into where we had Chicago, and we had yes, yes. Um, after that, point, Les right? Mis came out. And we've got Cats in theaters right now. La La Land and stuff, right? right? And like, and yeah, original yeah. musicals. That yeah. this feels like an original musical because it's not based on a Broadway yeah. musical. So I mean, it. I think that might be. Maybe it was a little bit ahead of of the curve, yeah, the curve in a, in a few places, but um, it it certainly didn't blow anyone away i enjoyed it i thought it was light and fluffy and and fun to watch having just read the play it was a fine adaptation even if it did minimize a lot of the secondary and tertiary characters to yeah, one line or, basically, yeah, or nothing move them like jack Quinetta and, and don armato don't even factor yeah. into it in the in yeah. the film at all really yeah there's um, one scene yeah but it's uh yeah it it, it yeah Highly entertaining, I found. Mm-hmm. Aiden finds it less so. <laughs> well, <laughs> you be the I, judge. Yeah. No, well, and I, I think I can see why it didn't do great. Because mm-hmm. it was both Shakespeare, which has a niche audience, and musical, which mm-hmm. was a niche audience. And, and they don't combine, overlap necessarily. They don't, yes, not so, very often. So Unless you're Baz Luhrmann, and then you can do whatever you, <laughs> you want. You can pull it off, right? <laughs> but, I mean, yeah, that I think that was kind of the struggle. Yeah. So. If I longer stay... We shall begin our ancient bickering. So we've got our marriage counseling session today. Yes. The doctor is in. Um, what is our? Who's the doctor? Who's the doctor? This? I don't I guess know. The microphone. The microphone. Yeah. Okay. Very sure. impartial. Yeah. Um, our our debate today is: Should this play be considered a comedy, or not? Or, or not? And if not, what should it be? I suppose is the um, the question. So. Uh, Aiden, do you have a, a position? I do. I okay. think it should not be considered a comedy. Okay. Uh, mostly because it doesn't fulfill the basic archetypes. Like, there's no marriage at the end. Uh, it's not a happy ending. Mm-hmm. And it, it is mostly around that that ending piece. Right. Uh, but the whole play structure is just so off from a typical comedy. It's mm. not like you have the meet cute and then you have... Uh, the, the troubled, like, they, there's never any real conflict between the lovers. There's no misunderstandings. Well, there are, but I'll there let are. you finish. Sorry. <laughs> and, uh, no, and I'll grant you that. There there are, but it's very, uh, it's very structured. Everyone's kind of in the know. Like, when the, when the, the only misunderstanding is that whole, uh, oh, I put my, uh, I wore the different uh, token of affection, so therefore Well, and you... the men, the men are trying to, con- like, they don't want the other guys to find out what they're up to. Okay, yeah, sure, and that's funny, but it's not. It's not a, a, In a, a factor of, yeah. of the comedy thing, trope of yes. the the marriage at the end being yeah. the thing that solu- solves everything. Like, yeah. it's not a comedy of errors. Yes, uh, it's not Two Gentlemen of Verona. Uh, it's not even Merchant of Venice. You know where? Right. The not Merchant of Venice. Sorry. Merchant of Venice. Yeah, Merchant of Venice. I'm like, oh, what are no. you talking about? That. Uh, <laughs> Taming of the Shrew, right. you know, where there's this this kind of wrap up of of a, a happy go lucky uh, marriage at the end right. of it. Uh, it it gets rid of all that in terms in terms of structure and just charts its own course. So mm-hmm. I think calling it a comedy, um, if you said, okay, well here's three other here's five other Shakespearean comedies. Oh, and then there's Love's Labor's Lost. That's also a comedy. If you went in having just read or watched those five, and then one you watched this one. Not like exactly <laughs> that's what that's what would happen so okay. i i think it just it doesn't quite fit Lindsay, you agree disagree well i i think the structure of this 
debate says I must disagree. As much <laughs> as I as I spent most of this podcast episode railing against the idea that this was a comedy, I do think for the most part, I, I, it's 80% of the way there. Yeah. Really, or, or more. It's really just in the last scene that we get this wrench really thrown into things. I can live with the structure being different and having this be just an innovative new form of a comedy. The idea that there is no marriage at the end is kind of false as well because we don't know if there's going to be marriage or not. It could be. Even though Barone Mm. says it's too long for a play, if you, like me, believe that the story continues after you put the book down, we don't (laughs) know if these men are going to be... Maybe they will be. Maybe they'll they'll surprise us all and they'll be able to hold to their bargain and and then they'll marry the women of their dreams and and everything will be fine. It's just going to be in... Act six when it happens, and so it's it's entirely possible that so that happens. So you're conceding that it doesn't have the properties of a comedy. I think it has. If, if the only criteria criterion yeah. for comedy is that it has to have a marriage at the end, then no, it's not a comedy. But I win. The that <laughs> the whole play is set up in a way that you you get 80, 85, 90 percent of the way there. Yeah. In a comedic format. In a yeah. comedic format. Yeah. And it's just at the end where it's left ambiguous. I still think it doesn't fit the other. It's not a tragedy. It's not a history play. No. It's not, it's not really a romance. Re- it's not really a, a problem play in that sense. Well, I, uh, I, think, I think when you look at the other problem plays that have so much more depth. when The Winter's Tale is such a complicated complex emotional piece the characters are they grow in the course of a play and i think that is what makes a problem play a problem play because these characters as you said are interchangeable they don't have any character growth they follow their their lines literally right up until the end literally even through to the end of the play after that wrench has been thrown in they follow the script even if they, in character, don't agree with what they're being told to say, they don't agree with the playwright. I... The only thing that, that might make this, and I, I will, I, the metatextual nature of Love's Labor's Lost as a play about plays, or a play that references itself as a play, is very interesting and very different. But I still think that it fits but, more of yeah. the... More of the comedies, if you put all the comedies together, yeah, okay, and you yeah. put Love's Labor's Lost into that, closely resembles. But if you put them with the comedy. problem plays, it doesn't fit with the other problem plays. So it, as far right. as our <laughs> limited categories for Shakespearean plays okay. go, it's most okay. like a comedy. Okay, just like Troilus and Cressida is most like a tragedy, but they both survive at the end. Like it's, yeah, you know, it it is it is inherently subverting them. And I also I disagree on the. It's only the end because I, I think the fact that the women don't treat are not actually in love with the men is a major change. And they don't fall in love with the men. They they kind of are open to it at well, the yeah, end. Yeah, but I think but they're not okay. No, and I'm just saying I'm just saying that's that's also a subversion of uh, sure. the comedy, you know, of tearing apart two lovers uh because they're you know, comedies has ensued and there's cross letters and your two gentlemen of Verona style stuff is going on or comedy of errors level stuff yeah. is, is happening. Um, that's not where the comedy lies in this. It's in the fact that 
it is not a comedy. You know, it's kind of like, here's here's the tropes you think you're getting. You think you're getting, oh, a princess and a king and they're going to fall in love. Oh, well, yeah, you get half of that. You get half of the equation but that's in enough, this play. I think. I think that's enough to to look at it and say it's... It's enough for it to be a comedy and it's not enough for it to be anything else. I think it is enough to, I think it's enough to turn it into a pro- problem play. Well, I think it is literally the, a problem. When I think it, you're it, literally a problem. Well, I understand that because we're married and when you tell we, me that frequently. But <laughs> Once we get to the actual problem plays, which are coming up. No, they're not. Those are near the end. Yeah, you're right. We're we're about <laughs> we're, we're about not a quarter of the way this. through yeah. the collected works. Uh, the first problem play shows up about halfway through, yeah. so we're about a year away from <laughs> yeah. the first problem play. But once we get to those problem plays, I think you'll see. Well, I, no, no, I, and I agree. But I, I think if you s- s- create the problem plays as their own category, they do have a lot of things in sim in similarity. But if you just say anything that's not a comedy. Not a romance, mm. not a tragedy, and not a history. And those are the problem plays. I think this one fits that. Bit. See, but I think that's a, a difference in the way that we are defining Absolutely. problem plays. So this I is. I am right. And you are wrong. I don't think that's how it is either. <laughs> I think you are wrong and I am right. But, um, but the, again, when we get to the problem plays, this is going to be a really interesting one because the problem plays themselves are not easily categorized so so i think exactly that's why the problem exactly. just like this one so but I made my point okay I no you, thank you Lindy. I you're the best your... i love you this is more like a comedy than anything else <laughs> final word i win <laughs> parting is such sweet sorrow that i shall say good night till it be morrow so thank you for joining us uh, for this episode. It was our Love Slavers Lost uh, dedication. Uh, Lindsay, what's next for us? We have... Uh, we are doing a special episode about the sonnets. Yes. So we just finished a, an episode on the narrative poems, yes. which are a different beast unto themselves. The sonnets, we're not going to read all of the sonnets. God, I no. think there's a hundred and... <laughs> 56 or something i don't remember a lot there's a lot of them and they're wonderful they're little bite-sized nuggets of of wisdom um but they are by and large there are there are categories that they fit into so what we're i think what we're gonna do is choose each of us choose a few favorites from the the discrete cycles of of the sonnets within the grand cycle of the sonnets mm-hmm. um we'll talk a little bit about the history of the sonnet uh, i think it'll be a fun episode it'll be it'll be i think the sonnets are very accessible to a lot of people and they're something that most people are fairly familiar with um some of the best and most romantic language comes from the sonnets shall i compare thee to a summer's day or let me not to the marriage of two minds admit impediments mm-hmm. uh those are the classic lines that everybody kind of knows because they've been to weddings before and yeah. so um i think it'll be a fun a fun little special episode after that we're jumping back into the history plays That's with richard the right. second i think this is where richard our I. our richard i i yeah. our chronology is starting to splinter a little bit from the accepted chronology yeah for most of the, the other ones royal shakespeare company and uh, Oxford have their own everybody has their own chronology but we yeah. kind of compared them and we're like this makes the most sense and then once we get into we'll let you know where we're deviating a bit hopefully we'll try and um, uh, fit them into a, a broader chronology if we can yep. um, 
Kind of like the, what we did with the Henry the... What am I talking about? We did Henry the Sixth out of order. So yeah. it's not the first time well, we've deviated. Yeah, yeah but, exactly. Yeah. Um, so anyway, Richard the Second will be after uh, the sonnets. But yeah, definitely join us in a couple of weeks for the sonnet episode. Um, we hope you all have a wonderful new year. Yes. And uh, don't party too hard. Or if you do, make sure that you are not wearing the brooch of your best friend so that her boyfriend doesn't hit on you by accident at tonight's party. Wow. I'm just saying. Very, very handy advice, Lindsay. I, I, I think it's, if there's one thing you take away from Love's Labor's Lost, it's that. <laughs> you can find all our episodes on iTunes, Spotify, Podbean, YouTube, or wherever you get your podcast fix. If you want to tell us what you think of Shakespeare, his plays, poems, or any of the topics we discuss, we'd love to hear from you. You can contact us on Twitter, that's at TheBixPod, on Facebook at Facebook.com slash TheBixPod, or by email at TheBixPod at gmail.com. That's our cue to exit.